Thank you for listening to this podcast from Living Hope Church in Skokie, Illinois, featuring the preaching of Pastor Daniel Mann. For more information about our church, please visit us online at livinghopechicago.com. We hope that today's message will encourage you in your relationship with God. I want to invite you to to join me in Ephesians chapter 3. We're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. We're calling this study All In. Because as we learn in chapter 1 especially, everything that we need is found all in Jesus Christ. And so we're going through the book of Ephesians, learning all that we have in Him and all that He desires to do in our lives. So as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 3, let me talk to you about what happened in February of 2011. NPR, National Public Radio, claimed on their program, This American Life, to have uncovered Coca-Cola's secret recipe. Now, they have a company archivist whose name is Phil Mooney, and he says that this happens all the time, that every few years someone pops up who claims to have discovered uh, Coca-Cola's secret recipe. But obviously it hasn't hurt them very much when these claims are made because um, according to research done in 2011, Coca-Cola was selling 1.7 billion drinks every 24 hours. Every day, every 24 hours... Coca-Cola sells 1.7 billion drinks. Now, I would say that their recipe is safe. In fact, the recipe lies in a vault in a SunTrust bank in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, and only two executives, there are numerous executives within the um, Coca-Cola business, but only two at a time are allowed access to this vault. It seems that their secret is still safe. Have you ever had a secret that you wanted to keep a secret? Are you good at keeping secrets? I think we would all agree that one um, surefire way of ruining a secret is by telling it to a child. If you tell a child a secret, it is a secret no longer. We, we, in fact, we love discovering secrets. I imagine your ears perk up when someone says to you, hey, I have a secret I want to share with you. Sometimes we're told secrets that uh, are relatively insignificant. And sometimes we have such a, a close relationship with someone that they tell us secrets that are of the highest magnitude. It really, secrets, their value, their significance, they really depend on a couple things. It depends on the, the person sharing the secret and the subject of the secret. Now, if you came to me before the service and said, Pastor Daniel, um, today is such and such as birthday. I want you to keep a secret for the next couple hours that we have a cake for them after the service. That, that would be an important secret, but that wouldn't be of the highest magnitude, would it? But there are some secrets that someone would share that perhaps is of the highest magnitude. Well, how would you react if you found out that God has a secret that He wanted to reveal to you. You see, the word mystery is used 27 times in the New Testament. It was one of the Apostle Paul's favorite words. But but the word mystery in the New Testament um, carried a different meaning than the way that we use it today. 
When we talk about a mystery, we're normally referring to to some problem that's difficult to solve. But when the Apostle Paul used it, he was referring to a secret known only by God and that could never be figured out by human beings. Because you see, not only did human beings not know the secret, but we didn't even know there was a secret. Not only did we not know the secret, we didn't even know there was a secret. So there was no way that that human beings could figure out or discover it. It was something that God had to reveal. And God revealed a secret to Paul and to the other apostles and prophets of the New Testament. And it was a secret that is eternal. It was hidden in God from the beginning of the world. I mean, think about this. It it was something that Adam didn't know. Something Abraham didn't know. Something Moses didn't know. Something David didn't know. Something Elijah didn't know. Something none of the Old Testament saints knew. So God is the one who has the secret. And the subject? The subject of the secret includes you and me and all the peoples of the world. So he's got a secret, and it's a secret about us. It's a secret about all the peoples of the world. And I think we'll find the answer to this secret here in Ephesians chapter 3. Look with me in Ephesians 3, look at verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word, or for you, how that by revelation... He made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery. Now notice that's very interesting there. He says, I wrote uh, uh, to you earlier in a few words about this mystery. Well, where did he write that? Well, it's none other than in Ephesians chapter 1. So a couple chapters earlier that we already uh, studied this. But look again at verse 9 and 10. This is what he's talking about here. He says, "...having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to the good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation or the stewardship of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in Him. And as we talked about in the first message, that that mystery was that God is heading everything up in Christ. That He is making Christ the head of the universe. That everything will be headed up in Jesus. That everything exists for Jesus. Now look back at chapter 3 and look at verse 5. He's still talking about this mystery, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And verse 6 is the key verse here. This is where he tells us what this mystery is. The mystery of Christ, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the working of His mighty power, unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, 
and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent or for the purpose that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. So Paul wrote to his Gentile audience in in Ephesus, explaining to them that God had revealed the secret mystery of Christ. And that's my message for you and I today, is that God has revealed the secret mystery of Christ to us. The title of the message is this, the secret is out. God has revealed it. The secret is out. The secret mystery of Christ. Now the question is, what is that secret? What is the secret mystery that's been revealed to us? There are four details that we find in this chapter, this passage about the secret mystery of Christ. Number one, the secret revealed. What is it? It is this, that God has made us fellow heirs of the riches of Christ with Jewish believers. That God has made Jews and Gentile believers fellow heirs. Now, the subject of our eternal inheritance is a key theme of Paul's. He talked about it in chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 18. He talked about the fact that we are, we are, we are heirs of the riches of Christ. He talked about that in verse 18. That What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And the word fellow heirs literally means heirs together or co-heirs. Heirs together, fellow heirs, co-heirs. It's used four times in the New Testament, this word fellow heirs. One time here, the other three times it's used. The first is in Romans 8.17, when believers are called joint heirs with Jesus. That we are joint heirs with Christ. It's used on a second occasion in Hebrews 11 verse 9. And in this instance, it refers to Isaac and Jacob as being heirs with Abraham. How that they were heirs with him of the same promise. And then it's used, the third reference is it's used to refer to a saved husband and wife as Heirs together of God's grace. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. What fellow heirs means in Ephesians 3, 6, is that both Jewish and Gentile believers will share in the glory of heaven with Christ. And the idea is the inexhaustible wealth of God will be not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles who believe on Christ. That we are fellow heirs of this inheritance. That God has not only given inheritance to Jews who have believed on His Son, but He's given an inheritance to Gentiles as well. I mean, imagine a family that have two, two children. They have one biological child and they have one adopted child. 
The parents sit down together to write out a will and to make their two children equal co-heirs of their inheritance. They're, they're, They're going to be fellow heirs. When the parents pass away, when they die, their two children are going to receive equal portion of the wealth and the possessions that the parents had. They were fellow heirs together. It didn't matter that one child was born biologically into the family and the other adopted. What matters most is that both were children, and what matters most is the will of the parents. It's interesting, too, because when Paul was writing this in Ephesians, he's writing to people that are in the Roman Empire, and in Roman law, all children, including adopted ones, were equal heirs. And that's what Paul was trying to say, that that, that whether Jew or Gentile, in Jesus Christ, we are all heirs according to the promise. That's what Galatians 3.29 says, that, 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 that in Christ, we are all Abraham's seed. In Christ, we are all heirs according to the promise. By the way, let me just say in passing that both Jews and Gentiles are adopted by God. We, we need to be reminded that Abraham was a Gentile when God adopted him. And so it is with all people that it's by the adopting grace of God that we become heirs of the promise. So how does this idea of us being fellow heirs, can, can you put that down into in, in something livable and practical for us? I, I think we can Because I think this idea that we're fellow heirs together, equal co-heirs together of the inheritance of God, ought to affect the way that we treat one another. I mean, think about those who are followers of Jesus who are very wealthy, and maybe even tempted to view the poorer as inferior. How much would it help uh, to view even the poorest believer as an equal fellow heir of the kingdom of God? Isn't that what James was saying in James 2.5 when he said that you're despising the poor, but that God has made those who are poor but rich in faith heirs of the kingdom? And what was happening is they, they, that they, were, um, they, they were mistreating those who were poor. That they were disregarding them, putting them kind of in the back and giving the most prominent places to the poor. And James says, no, you're, you're despising one who's a fellow heir of the kingdom of God. How much would it help Christian marriages if a husband and wife were to treat one another as fellow heirs? How would that help a husband speak to his wife? I don't think he would be as condescending. I don't think he would be as as domineering if while he was addressing her, he addressed her as a fellow heir. As 1 Peter 3, 7 says. How would it help racial relationship if we treated every believer, regardless of their ethnicity, as a fellow heir? Are you tempted sometimes to to look at people of a different ethnicity of you and have difficulty treating them with the same compassion, kindness? Oh, I think that's what Ephesians 3 is talking about here. How that no matter the ethnicity, if we're believers in Christ, we are fellow heirs. You know, how would it help us view our children? How would it help us evangelize them and disciple them if we viewed them as either present or potential fellow heirs of Christ? If you have a a child that has come to know Christ as Savior, your child is also a fellow heir. 
If you have a child in your home who's, who's not yet made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, they are still a potential fellow heir of the kingdom. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham wasn't the only one who was an heir, but Isaac and Jacob. It affected his relationship with his own children and grandchildren. How much would it help us face suffering and adversity in this life if, if we focused on the fact that we're joint heirs with Christ? That's at the heart of what Romans 8 is talking about when it says that we are joint heirs with Christ. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't be so discouraged when we face suffering. So what's the mystery? The mystery is that we're fellow heirs. Number two, the mystery is that Jews and Gentiles are fellow members of the body of Christ. That we're fellow members of the body of Christ. And Paul loves the analogy of the body. He, he says this so many times in the book of Ephesians where he talks about uh, being a part of the body of Christ. And this, this phrase of the same body literally means united in body, together in body. And it, it refers to the oneness of believers in Christ, that we are spiritually linked and connected together and this would have been mind-blowing to Jews and Gentiles because all their lives they had been separated. They were in separate bodies, so to speak, separate groups. But now that they were no longer separate, but they were united together in Christ. I read about a boy this week. His name is Zion Harvey. He's 10 years old. When he was two, he developed a life-threatening infection. Both of his hands had to be amputated. Because of this infection, his kidney was damaged. Physically, he was in a mess. When he was four years old, his mother donated a kidney, a healthy kidney to him. And when he was eight years old, he became the first kid to receive both new hands by transplant. So here he is. A kidney that belonged to his mom was now transplanted into his body. And hands that belonged to an anonymous donor now were transplanted unto him. Body parts from his mom and from an anonymous donor now united together in his body. And now they belong to one body. They belong to Zion's body. Body parts that were belonging to another are now together. Paul so many times talked about this in his epistles. This idea that we're the part of the body of Christ. Well, how does this speak to us practically? Well, yes, it speaks to us about unity, but it, but it also speaks to us about interdependence, that, that we need one another. And do you live isolated from God's people? Because, see, you can't function that way. Just as your arm can't function apart from your body, so you can't function apart from the church. And I want to encourage you just practically here to join a growth group, to join one of our growth groups and begin in building relationships and live in community with those in that small group. And, and also, I would say, be careful that you don't build relationships with people that are just like you. Are all your friends of your same ethnicity? Are, are all your friends the same life stage and background and socioeconomic position as you're in? You see, build relationships with people in the body of Christ who are different from you because they are important and you need them and they need you. So what's this mystery? The mystery is that we're fellow heirs. The mystery is that we're fellow members of the same body. Thirdly, the secret is that God has made us fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. Fellow partakers 
of the promise in Christ. The word partaker literally means a sharer together, fellow sharers together. It, this is, it, it's only used one other time in the whole Bible, and it happens to be in this book, and it's used in chapter 5, verse 7, when Paul said, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. So in this chapter, in chapter 3, it's used in a positive sense. In chapter 5, it's used in a negative sense. And the idea is not to share together in the lifestyle of those who are sinful. But in this chapter, chapter 3, he wants them to see the positive reality that we are sharers together. But what? Sharers together in what? He tells us it's the promise of God in Christ by the gospel. That we are sharers together, partakers together in the promise of Christ by the gospel. Well, what does this mean? I want to give it to you in kind of two, two ways to think about it. The first is there's a broad sense where the promise of Christ by the gospel includes all that is involved in our salvation. I mean, all the things like redemption and freedom from sin and forgiveness and peace and joy and reconciliation and adoption and everlasting life and all those spiritual blessings we talked about in chapter 1 that I don't have time to re-preach. That's a broad sense, all that we have in Christ. But, but I think what Paul's talking about here is, is more of a narrow sense. And it's this, that the promise that we have in Christ by the gospel is the promise of the Holy Spirit receiving the indwelling of God's Spirit within us. Look at chapter 1, look at verse 13. Why do I think that when he's talking about the promise of Christ by the gospel that I think he's talking about the, the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Look at verse 13. In whom ye also, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. I think what Paul wants them to see is that Jew and Gentile believers alike share in this promise. And they've been made partakers of God's Spirit. God's Spirit lives in them, and they share together in that glorious reality. Both have the Spirit of God in them. Galatians 3.14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Have you ever thought about the incredible privilege that it is to have received the Holy Spirit? What an incredible promise it is that that, that God has placed His Spirit within us. And that God doesn't have... He has not reserved the promise of His Spirit for some of His children and excluding others. No, all of His children are sharers together in this promise. So what's the mystery? We're fellow heirs of the same inheritance. We're fellow members of the same body, the body of Christ. We are fellow sharers of the promise and the Spirit of God indwells us. Finally, number four, the secret is that God has made us fellow displayers of His wisdom. Jews and Gentiles, believers in Christ, fellow displayers of His wisdom. He says something absolutely incredible in verse 10. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. To the intent or for the purpose that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. He's talking about the holy and unholy angels. The angels and demons. The principalities and powers in heavenly places. Unto them 
might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The meaning of this is that God is revealing His wisdom to the heavenly angelic beings through the church. One man said that we, the church, are God's theater to display His wisdom. Warren Wiersbe says that God is educating the angels by means of the church. And John MacArthur wrote, In the classroom of God's universe, He is the teacher, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. What what, what Paul's saying here is, is Jews and Gentiles united together in Christ are used by God to display the wisdom and skill that He possesses to the angels and demons. How many of you enjoy watching the, the Summer Olympics? I mean, every four years, I, I always look forward to that. And one of my favorite things is to watch the, the opening ceremony. And, 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 and you know, it, it's, it's called the artistic program. It's one of those things that makes every Olympic game truly unique because each country uh, puts together a show. And it's become quite the competition to, to one-up the, the, the previous uh, country and and during that artistic program, they display their culture, their history, their, their artistic achievements, and usually a mixture of music and theater and singing. And it's an opportunity for them to showcase their country, their skill, their, their wisdom, what they've accomplished. And on a much grander scale, though, God uses the church to display to angelic beings His wisdom. You know, it's important for you to have a proper understanding of of angels and demons. It's clear from Scripture that not only are they created, as Colossians 1.16 tells us, but we also know from other passages that they're not omniscient. Meaning God alone knows all things. Angels and demons do not have perfect knowledge of everything. They're capable of growing in their knowledge and their understanding. And God as Creator... He can use angels to teach mankind as He has. In Luke 2, He sent them to the shepherds to say, Unto you is born this day a Savior. And God, if He desires to, He can use human beings to teach the angels. He can can use the angels to teach us, and He can use us to teach the angels. And and what I'd like you to, to think about in this point is that class is in session today for the angels and demons as they look at what's happening here at Living Hope. God is displaying His wisdom when they look around and see people coming from all different nationalities and religious backgrounds and seeing them come together in Christ. Oh man, they are seeing the wisdom and skill of God. It really helps me to get a firmer grasp on what Ephesians 2.10 says when it says that we are His workmanship, we are His masterpiece. God's using us as ways to display His wisdom. And He doesn't just do that with Jews or just with Gentiles or just with one ethnicity, but every ethnicity together united in one body, He teaches the demons and the angels about His wisdom. In a bank in downtown Atlanta, there's the recipe for Coca-Cola lies in a vault to be kept secret and But the secret of God, the eternal secret of the ages, the secret that includes you and me and all the peoples of the world, 
has now been revealed. It is now an open secret. It is hidden in plain sight for all to see. And that secret is that we're fellow heirs of the same inheritance. We're fellow members of the same body. We are fellow partakers of the promise of the Spirit of God by the gospel of Christ. And we are fellow displayers of His wisdom to the holy and unholy angels. What does this mean for us? I love the application Paul gives in in chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, "...in whom, or in Christ..." We have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. That that what Paul wanted them to see by by revealing this mystery to them, he wanted them to see that the, the bold confidence that they could approach God in, the secret means that, that you and I, in Christ, are just as welcome in His presence as Abraham, as Moses, as Elijah, as David, as Peter, as Paul, or any other believer. Because we're fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers, and fellow displayers. And he didn't want these Gentile believers to feel as if that they had to take a back seat in their relationship to God, but that they could have boldness and confidence in their access to God. God wants you and I to approach Him boldly and confidently through faith in Him, through what He has done for us in Christ. And if you know Him, you can enjoy your bold access to Him. And that doesn't mean irreverent, but it means that you can come to Him in confidence, knowing that you are accepted, that you're an heir, that you're a member, that you're a partaker, that you're a displayer of His wisdom, that He has included you. And oh, if you are not in Christ, today I would urge you to come to Him, to believe on Him. And all of these blessings that are found in Christ can be yours today. If you committed your life to Jesus Christ or made a spiritual decision, we would like to rejoice with you. Please connect with us on our website, livinghopechicago.com. We hope you'll join us next time for another encouraging message from God's Word.